A Crossair Avro RJ100 is on its way into Zurich when it crashes into a mountain. What caused this flight to run into the mountain just miles from the runway? Got a fixing for something to listen to? Check out the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. Each week, this podcast will bring you a story of an event, paranormal or strange, told to you based on the stories of people who experienced these events in their own lives. These stories will take you to the depths of fear and back again. This podcast will teach you of places haunted by spectrals and other shadows, ghost investigations, dream homes taken over by the paranormal, or supernatural events, and so much more. You may even start questioning the places you visit and look over your shoulder at every sound or gust of wind. Pull up a chair and join the hosts as they take you into the unknown with the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. Check them out on your favorite podcast app or on their website, hupspodcast.com. That is Hotel Uniform Papa Sierra Podcast.com. Choose to believe or not, it's your choice. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. I'm also going to apologize in advance. My throat doesn't feel great, so it might be some coughing and you might hear a cough drop in my mouth. It's a thing. It's a thing. So it goes. We have a new patron we need to thank. Ian. Thank you, Ian. We haven't thanked you on an episode yet. Oh. So. Yes, thank thanks. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Thanks. Thank you so much for being a patron. We appreciate it. Also, thank you for correcting one of my episodes. I said like the wrong form of a 727 or something. Yeah, is you that. Like, you were like, actually, it's a 727-100. And I fixed it. <laughs> I mean, the episode itself isn't fixed, but I fixed everything. The posts yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So please like let us know when that happens, especially me, because I don't always know when that stuff is the case. Because I'm not the aviation nerd. So. <laughs> Hello. That's usually me. And if it was on the wiki page, it was a 727-22C, and my mind automatically went, it has a 2, it's a 200. Mm-hmm. So, there you that's go. That's what I would have done. I mean, I think that's fair. Yes. So. Oh, but. There in, you go. In any case. In any case. All right. We have many March ducks to send episode? out. Oh, I think I put lucky stories. Stories where you felt lucky. Again. I think we did that last year, too. Pretty sure. <laughs> I think March is apt to do that. We got some really good stories last year for it, so mm. I'm down. True. Yeah. So we will be doing the February stories. We got a lot toward the end of the month, and then we were like, when are we going to record? I'm like, I don't know, because we haven't had to do it in a few months. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's going to happen. It will happen. It'll come out probably some... T- if it has not come out already by the time you've heard this, it will come out like really, 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 really soon. So... Yeah. We have many ducks to send. Yes. Yes. We are waiting until March 1st when... Or ish, somewhere around there where we get our payout from Patreon because postage... Yes. <laughs> is expensive. Yes. <laughs> But we appreciate it. I'm glad we've had a lot of interest in it. Yeah. Yeah. And engagement. Yes. Yes. If you do want ducks, you end up wanting ducks, and you give us the request in the middle of the month, we will probably send it to you the next month, the beginning of next month. Yes. So just be aware of that. If you haven't gotten them yet, it's because we haven't sent them yet. So Yeah, that. If you live in Australia, 
We're sorry. So sorry. So sorry. So sorry. You can put in the request. We'll get to it eventually whenever both of our postal services decide to get it together. Yeah. Yay. If you live in Colorado, there is like a 50% chance we'll just deliver it to you. Yeah. We'll probably just email you and be like, hey, can we just go get this? Give this to Depends you. on your location. It does. Yeah. If you're like in the general metro area, probably. Or if you're in the mountains. Aroundish the metro we're area. Not, we're not yeah. bringing it to the mountains. Uh-uh. Anyway. Anyway, I think that's all for housekeeping, though. Yeah. All right. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Crossair Flight 3597. Thank you to our patron, Julian, for recommending this episode. We actually met today. today. Yeah. <laughs> over a Zoom we are call. recording it, yeah. Yeah, so over one of our Patreon Zoom calls. So there you go. It was nice to meet you, Julian. It We're doing uh, your horde of episodes right now. <laughs> yeah. I told you. In case you missed it, he also recommended Alitalia Flight 404, which I will be referencing because this is at the same airport. This happened on November 24th of 2001. This was an Avro RJ100 or a British Aerospace 146-300. This had the tail number Hotel Bravo-India X-Ray Mike. This was a flight from Berlin to Gell Airport in Germany to Zurich, Switzerland. What do you know? Zurich. Hence, yeah. we're doing all the Switzerland bunch, also <laughs> with, like, German wings. And we still have more, actually. Can anyone guess where Julian's from? Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> the captain for this flight was Hans Lutz. He was 57 years old. He had 19,555 hours total, of which 287 hours were on the type. So, not a whole lot of hours on the type, but a lot of hours in general. Yeah. Meanwhile, the first officer was Stefan Lohrer. He was 25 years old. He had 490 hours total, yeah. of which 348 hours were on the type. So almost all of his hours were on the airplane. Yeah, seems about right. And he had more hours on the aircraft on this type than the captain than did. Than the captain did. Yeah, just to add to the bizarreness. The aircraft was performing its 15th and final flight of the day. 15th flight of the day. That's a lot. Yeah, is this one of those like really short hops? Yeah, this is a smaller airplane. These BA-146s, it has four engines, but it's still a regional airplane. It's not very powerful. It's got four jet engines, and it travels decent speed, but not, not as fast as most even regional jets are today. It was very commonly used in Europe on these short hops. It was a popular airplane for that. There's still a few of them out there, but most of them have been retired. The previous flight was with the same crew, and they arrived at Berlin 40 minutes late at around 8.30 p.m. In Berlin, the passengers offloaded, and 28 passengers boarded the aircraft. A group of 21 passengers ended up not taking the flight, which was originally scheduled for 49 passengers, so 21 people didn't go. They just didn't show up, apparently. The flight also had five crew members on board. The captain was to be the pilot flying, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for the flight. At 8.48 p.m., the flight requested pushback and startup clearance. The air traffic controller cleared the flight for this request. At 8.50 p.m., the flight was pushed back from the gate, just 10 minutes behind scheduled departure, because it took them only 18 minutes to turn. That's nuts. That's um, insane. I mean, to be fair, they didn't, small aircraft. they didn't need catering, and they didn't need fuel. So they didn't need much. They got off, got back on. Yeah, pretty much. They just offloaded everything and everyone and loaded Reloaded everybody they up. needed yeah. in all the bags, and away they went. 
8.56 p.m., the flight was given instructions to taxi to runway 26 left at Berlin. 9.01 p.m., the flight took off from runway 26 left. A moment later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to climb to 16,000 feet. 16,000 feet. The airplane eventually climbed to a cruising altitude of 27,000 feet for the flight. 9.40 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to flight level 240, or 24,000 feet. Two minutes later, at 9.42 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight for a further descent to 16,000 feet, so back down to 16,000. While in this descent, the crew ran through an approach briefing for an ILS approach to runway 14, as per the current ATIS information at the time for Zurich. While they were carrying out this approach briefing, the first officer noticed that the airplane's speed was approaching the overspeed area and drew attention to it for the captain, who promptly responded by reducing the power to maintain a safe speed. Meanwhile, the first officer carried out setting the nav settings or navigation settings for the approach. 9.44 p.m. and 38 seconds, the flight contacted Zurich Radar ATC while still descending towards 16,000 feet. The air traffic controller subsequently gave the flight clearance to descend to 13,000 feet and reduce their speed to 240 knots. 9.47 p.m. and 56 seconds, the flight was transferred to the Zurich Arrival East Control. At that time, the flight crew informed that air traffic controller that they had the ATIS information Kilo. What the crew didn't know was that the ATIS information had changed to information Mike instead from Kilo. Though they hadn't gotten this new ATIS information, the change was not significant, but the landing runway had changed. The air traffic controller did not inform them of the ATIS information change, but did inform them of the landing runway change from runway 14 to runway 28 at Zurich. This was done because a new rule had been put in place for Zurich that all arriving traffic after 10 p.m. should use runway 28 for noise abatement issues pertaining to runway 14 okay. that had the airplanes flying low over southern Germany. For the approach. So basically, Germany was like, please don't. Yeah, please please just don't do that after 10. We're trying to sleep. Yeah, so after 10 p.m., they were supposed to start landing on runway 28. Now, this is still before 10 p.m. that pretty much all of this happens. Not everything, but all of this is happening at this point. But basically, the air traffic controllers were being proactive and preparing for that. So they started shifting all the traffic over to 28 before 10 p.m. Yeah. This complicated things a bit, however, because the weather conditions were changing and were worsening at Zurich, and the crew had planned to perform the very accurate instrument landing system, or ILS, approach for runway 14, but were now having to perform the far less accurate VOR DME approach to a runway on the opposite end of the airport. We've talked a little bit about these before. Non-precision approaches. Yes, non-precision approaches. So in this case, this can't give them vertical guidance the way an ILS can. It can give them lateral guidance and distance. So distance to the runway and then laterally if they're left or right of the runway. Right. But altitude is pretty much at their discretion, which is why this is not considered a a precision approach because it doesn't give you three degrees of precision. A short time later, the flight was instructed to fly to Waypoint Rilax, or R-I-L-A-X, to hold. From 9.51 p.m. and 56 seconds to 9.52 p.m. and 52 seconds, so almost a minute. While in the hold, the flight crew performed the new approach briefing for the runway change. Both flight crew had performed the approach to runway 28 several times. Considering they're based at Zurich, I really hope so. Yeah, and the number of times they fly to and from Zurich even in a day... Considering there was 15 flights that day, and granted, the crew weren't on all of those 15 flights with that airplane, but still, they had done a lot of flights. Yes. 
9.53 p.m. and 42 seconds, the flight was instructed to turn right to a heading of 180. Two minutes later, there was a brief instruction by the air traffic controller and a miscommunication in return by the first officer that was corrected by the air traffic controller. This ended up being really non-incident. I, I could have written out all the details, but it was mostly non-pertinent. I don't even talk about it, so... Yeah, it, it, it really doesn't come up much. This kind of speaks to the report had way too many details in it. They wrote out all of the details about this, and it ultimately didn't matter. Mm. 9.57 p.m. and 18 seconds. The flight was instructed to descend to 6,000 feet. At 9.58 p.m. and 50 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for the VOR DME approach to runway 28. Moments later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to reduce their speed to 180 knots, 10.03 p.m. and 1 second. The flight was passed to the tower controller for Zurich. The airport was getting quiet at the time, with a few departing flights and only two other crosshair flights on approach ahead of flight 3597, and no others behind. Because of this, there was only one tower controller at the time and one ground controller. The flight had begun following the approach path and was descending from 5,000 feet to 4,000 feet in a right turn onto the final approach track of 275 degrees, just 11 nautical miles east of the airport. 10.03 p.m. and 29 seconds. One of the flights ahead on the approach, Crosshair 3891, reported that visibility was near minimums approaching the runway, with the runway sighted at just 2.2 nautical miles away, which, by the way, the... Mayday episode, or air crash investigations, because it wasn't an air disasters episode, got wrong. They said 1.3. It's 2.2 was the factual information. But we all know how that goes. Yep. 3891 was the first flight to perform the approach to runway 28 that evening. So this was new information to the air traffic controllers that the minimums was 2.2 miles. 10.04 p.m. and 23 seconds, the captain stated that they were 8 nautical miles away and could begin descending below the 4,000 feet. 10.05 p.m. and 55 seconds, the captain explained that he had visual contact with the ground. The first officer agreed that they had visual contact with the ground, and they continued. 10.06 p.m. and 22 seconds, the ground proximity warning system announced 500, meaning they were 500 feet above the ground. Right. 10.06 p.m. and 31 seconds, the flight reached 2,000 feet, that's above sea level, and the ground proximity warning system announced minimums when they were at a radio altimeter of 300 feet. One second later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to land on runway 28. 10.06 p.m. and 34 seconds, the captain called for a go-around, and simultaneously, the autopilot was switched off. The first officer agreed with this decision to go around. The throttles were advanced to take off power. But a second later, the aircraft struck the tops of the trees on a hillside at 1,845 feet above sea level. 200 meters later, the airplane struck the trees again at 1,690 feet above sea level, at which time a fire started on the right wing. A moment later, the aircraft struck the hillside and broke up into several large pieces as it slid to a stop. The aircraft dropped off of the air traffic controller's radar at that time, but the air traffic controller did not immediately notice this. A post-crash fire ensued at parts of the crash site. 10, 10 p.m. and 32 seconds, so this was already a few minutes later now. Four minutes after giving the landing clearance... The air traffic controller triggered the highest alert and the first rescue vehicles from the airport arrived at the crash site just a couple of miles from the airport at 10.22 p.m., so 12 minutes after that. Nine people, including two crew and seven passengers toward the rear of the aircraft, survived the crash, and actually some with minor injuries. The other three crew and 21 passengers perished in the crash, however, 
including the flight crew. On board was also a musical group that was similar to the Spice Girls, but were German and known as Passion Fruit. Hmm. One of the members survived. Oh, that's The other good. two did not, unfortunately. So a lot happened there. There's a few things that if you're paying close attention might have seemed a little odd. So let's talk about it. If you're a pilot, one of those things that I didn't draw any attention to, but had two sequential things happen very quickly, you're probably screaming about in your head going, why? Okay, so this investigation was performed by the... AAIB? Yeah. (laughs) We just talked about it, so I didn't know if I remember. Yes, it was performed by the AAIB of Switzerland, since it was, you know, at Zurich, which is the main airport for the country and the headquarters of Crossair. Both black boxes were recovered and were sent to the BEA headquarters in France for analysis. Hmm. Seems like it's really just the NTSB, the BEA, and the AAIB of the UK that read out black boxes for the Pretty most much. part. Yeah, for the most part, because they all have a hand in the manufacturing of the majority I've of commercial aircraft. Boxes. Yeah. <laughs> Investigators interviewed the air traffic controller on duty at the time and found that the air traffic control center was understaffed at the time of the accident. Flight 3597 was the last flight of the night, and the air traffic control supervisor had left early. What? Wait, whoa, hold up. What? There was no supervisor on duty at this point. Isn't that, like, against the law? Like, there's, like, a problem with that, right? I mean, he got berated for it, yeah. Yeah. So he wasn't supposed to leave until 11 p.m., and they left at 10.03. They had a whole hour left? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. See, if it was, like, five minutes early, no. ten minutes early, no. sure. But an hour early? An hour's, yeah, a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. A lot can happen in an hour, obviously. Yeah. yeah. The remaining air traffic controller for approach was newer, but fully qualified, and investigators found that she, she was depicted as a she on air disaster. I'm not sure that it was, though, because... They. In the story, it's depicted as a he. They. <laughs> sure. They had not made any mistakes, per se, that led to or contributed to the crash. According to air disasters, the main consequence of not having a trained supervisor in the approach control was that there wasn't anyone confident in making the decision of runway usage. Yes, they changed to runway 28 due to noise abatement policy, but there was a provision such that if weather conditions required it, runway 14 could be put back in use, but there was no one in the control tower confident in making that call. That being said... That's not what the report said. The report said, quote, Thus, between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., on the basis of the prevailing weather and the published minimums for runway 28, it was not permitted to make ILS approaches on runway 14 or 16. Accordingly, Zurich approaches had to be conducted on standard VOR DME approach 28, end quote. It might be one of those things, though, that specific control tower has its own rules, And so if it was really like weather prevailing and they needed the ILS that they could switch it. But that's like, like I like we were talking about a supervisor call. Yeah. Not someone who's just a normal ATC controller. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's fair. So in that regard, it's kind of hard to say how much that really contributed, if at all. Right. In any case, radar monitoring was fulfilled. They did their job. Good job. Mm hmm. Now, a question you might have. What about that fancy minimum safe altitude warning system that got installed at Zurich after Alitalia Flight 404? Well, (laughs) you see. It wasn't in place for runway 28. 
because it was not equipped for ILS and only for non-precision approaches. Therefore, they deemed it didn't need it. I feel like that would be the one that would need it the most, right? Because they don't have lateral, like, up and down. Yeah, Yeah, vertical. vertical. Yeah. So there's something in place for non-precision approaches that I haven't really talked about yet that would show you why you don't need a minimum safe altitude warning system necessarily. But I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. The air traffic control recording showed that the crew did not report any emergencies on approach, so whatever happened, happened very quickly. Or went unnoticed. Did something go wrong with the engines? Did they shut down, maybe? We know that's happened. Upon reviewing the wreckage, investigators found foliage ingested in the engines, indicating that they were operating properly at the time of impact. So there goes that idea. Once investigators had the flight data recorder back, they found that the primary flight control parameters like elevator, ailerons, and rudder weren't able to be analyzed. They don't really go too far into why, but secondary flight controls as well as the flight track both indicated that nothing was wrong with the primary flight controls or control surfaces. Weather at the time of the accident, as we know, was pretty cloudy, limiting visibility. It wasn't so bad that landing was impossible, as proved by the preceding crosshair flights, namely Flight 3891, which reported seeing the runway a little late but still in time to land. There weren't any crazy instances of low-level wind shear that would have brought the plane down at the last minute. Not that we really anticipated that, but I guess it is the Alps. Yeah. It's one of those where you, you got to make sure it's the case, you know? Mm-hmm. got to yep. just cover your butt type thing, you know? I mean, Zurich is one of those interesting airports because Zurich sits in, I mean, Switzerland, which is basically entirely mountainous. So, I mean, there are flat areas within Switzerland, and this is in the flatter part of Switzerland, but there's still plenty of hills and mountains around. Which they where, crashed into. Yes, which, I mean, that's enough to still cause the conditions to be variable within microclimates. But they did not experience that. I don't know why I forgot to write this in my notes earlier, but investigators went very far in depth in analyzing the navigation instruments and any other such instrumentation on the flight deck, Mm -hmm. and nothing was wrong with them. They were working just fine. They were working just fine. Other than the one odd thing they found. The oil pressure gauge indicator thing was installed upside down. One of them was installed upside down. One of the four was installed upside down. The whole gauge. They didn't fix it. I mean, you could still read it. This was... It's just weird. Again, this was pretty non-consequential, but still... They mentioned it in the Air Disasters episode, too. And I was like, this... But that had nothing to do with the... No. Yeah, no. This isn't any kind of, like, primary flight instrument. This doesn't have anything to do with the operations of the actual... It's just weird. ...approach or anything. Yeah. 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 Like, why? (laughs) But that did speak to, are there bigger issues? Yeah. So, what does that leave us with? Pilot error. Shocked. Shocked, I say. (laughs) Shocker. Before digging into the CBR and all that contained, let's start with the pilot's background, starting with the captain. Oh, boy. And it's not a great start. Oh, no. He had an incomplete school education and was rejected for pilot pre-training three separate times. He eventually got accepted, showing his tenacity and passion for aviation, I guess, and began working for Crossair in 1979 and was considered experienced with 4,000 flight hours from flying charter, as well as being a flight instructor for both visual and instrument flight, though his talent was more in visual flying. How did investigators figure that out? Well, he failed his test for instrument rating twice before passing on the third attempt. 
and various experts from the Federal Office for Aviation noted his difficulties with instrument flying during check flights, as well as when he was training pupils on instrument flying. You know, I know we talk about how you shouldn't, like, poo-poo a pilot because they have to do stuff over and over, but also, it's a little bit of a red flag. Especially when you're training someone and you yourself have a problem with it, yeah. Which we'll talk a little bit about this later on, but he was actively an instructor outside of his airline duties. Yep. When he converted to transport flying, it was noted that his basic weaknesses were instrument flying and an inadequate comprehension, and he passed with a below-average mark. Through his career, his assessments and performances got better, and in 1982, he was noted as above average, though he tried to convert to the MD-80, and things went downhill again. Despite numerous lessons in the simulator, he was not making progress, and it was noted that he had a lack of overall comprehension and basic problems in controlling the aircraft. Well, that's not good. And, not at all. And that was not the fault of the course. As others said, it was a highly demanding course, but fair and matched the flying manner of the MD-80. Yeah, you got to be able to fly the aircraft. Like, you know, it's it's a high-stress job. It is. You got to yeah. be able to do it. <laughs> yep. At the time, he was trying to convert from the Saab 340, but he continued flying that without any deeper analysis of the reasons for failing the MD-80 transition course. It's like, if you're not doing well in one plane, you maybe want to evaluate the plane you're currently flying. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually, he was converted to the Avro RJ-85-100 when the Saab 340 was decommissioned, and the airline continued to say that the captain's qualifications were all positive, which contradicts the earlier assessments by experts who are not from the operator. Yeah, he had also a serious incident with a Saab 340 before they switched him to the Avro, where he put the gear up while they were on the ground and the airplane collapsed and it was considered a write-off. Who does that? Who, who, wait, I'm sorry. I realize I am not a pilot. I don't understand how pilots, how stuff works, okay? But I feel like... (laughs) This is a pretty easy one not to do. Yeah, when you're on the ground, you don't retract the landing gear. I feel like that's common sense. I'm not sure the whole background on the incident, but it was noted that, yeah, he retracted the landing gear and the airplane collapsed onto the tarmac. As it would, because there's no landing gear. Right. And it destroyed the airplane beyond repair. Was anybody on board? He was. Yeah, I don't I don't know beyond that. I don't know much about this incident. They just brought it up briefly. Couldn't have been comfortable in the Mayday episode. Yeah, I, I don't like that. I don't either. I, this all just doesn't seem very good. I feel like this person should not be a pilot. They shouldn't be, by standards then and now. Yeah. The specific instrument weaknesses he had were inappropriate use of navigation aids, particularly with regards to the digital flight guidance system on the MD-80. Which it turns out are quite important things. Yes. You know. So you, you know... Don't have a problem getting to a runway? Yeah. Now, granted, because this is a non-precision approach using very now quasi-outdated equipment, it did not require any digital flight guidance systems. Nope. But hold on. How was all of this relevant to this flight? He was relatively calm during the flight, as he normally was, almost unshakable. He only became irritated in two instances. The first time was when he was told that the approach was changing to runway 28, and he said, oh, 
that as well. Fine. Okay. I mean, when you have a certain idea in mind and then it switches. Yeah. But it also means it's a higher workload. Yes. And not only that, you're switching from an ILS landing, which is generally pretty easy to do because the airplane does a lot of the work for you, to one where you have to do a good portion of the work because you have to make sure that your altitude is correct. Right. Or you, you know, hit trees and stuff. Yeah. Now, he, he wasn't mad at anybody for this in particular. No, it's an inconvenience. Yes. It, it, he was I, just I mean, frustrated with the situation because it's not what he had planned. Yep. It's like when you hit traffic on the highway. You're like, nah. God. Yes. But you're like, eh, like, there's nothing you can what really can do, you do about, about it. What can you do about it? You're in traffic yeah. now. So it's like, eh, you know. The second time was 10 seconds before impact with the first obstacles, I should say. And he said... Two miles, he said, he sees the runway. Referring to the previous flight that said he saw the runway 2.2 miles out. Noting that basically where they were at at that point... He couldn't see the runway. Which was a sign to him that they weren't right. Right. Or that conditions had worsened. Right. So... And he did properly call for a go-around. Yeah, a little what? late. A little bit too late. Oh, was it just too late? Is that why they couldn't yeah. make the go-around? Oh, the okay. engines... As Nick mentioned, yes, it has four engines, but they're not exactly the most powerful things. Not either. at all. Well, and it takes a while for them to get revved up. So it's yeah. like... To spool up is, the, I guess, the technical term? Yeah, sure. Spool, yeah. For most of the flight, the captain was actually very useful on the CVR, more than pretty much any other flight crew we've ever talked about, in that he narrated everything he did, which is kind of nice from an investigator's perspective. Was it because he was... With the younger first officer? I think that might have something to do with it. They don't really go into it. They're just like, hey, thanks, post-mortemly. Yeah. Like, kind of training brain, you know? More more than likely, that is what was going on, because this was a younger first officer. He was used to training anyways. That's yeah. what he did on the side. That's, and I'll get more into that a little bit later, yeah. too. He used to do it for the airline, all those things. But he is used to kind of just spitting everything out, out loud. So he was speaking, I mean, everything. Everything, every step of everything they were doing, what he was expecting, what he was looking at, everything. He was talking about it all out loud, which from an investigation perspective is brilliant, phenomenal. We know everything that's going through your head. And what wasn't going through his head. Exactly. Is also how they know what went wrong. Oh, okay. Well, when the flight was six miles out, the minimum altitude for that position for that DME measurement was 3,360 feet, and they were at 3,240 feet. So they were too low. 120 feet too low. But the captain deemed that as either tolerable or didn't notice it, and said, six miles, three, three is checked. But he continued a steep descent, and what was never heard again in his narration was the distance from the VOR. Hmm. Investigators took this to mean that he did not refer to the DME for the rest of the descent. That's just, you know... Demonstrating his aversion to properly using navigation instrumentation. Yeah, it's it's just trying to help you get to the runway properly. But don't worry about that. That, no, no, not a big deal. Nah, yeah. You're, nah. The few pieces of information you do have while flying basically blind, mm-hmm. and you're not using them. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about a subject we have covered before, but we're going to cover it again because that's who we are. Let's talk about minimum descent altitude. Ah, MDA. MDA. So when you're making non-precision approaches on your charts, it tells you what MDA is. In this case, it was 2,390 feet. Yes. You are not allowed to descend below the minimum descent altitude until you see the runway. Yes. Right. You talked about this multiple times before. Yes. You have to have visual contact with the runway at that point. 
You must have visual contact with the runway. Just to reiterate, in case you didn't hear that, because apparently he didn't. 15 seconds before reaching MDA, the captain said, we have ground contact. He was at least looking out the window, thank God. But when they reached MDA a short time later, he continued descending after confirming he had ground contact. But that's not visual reference that you're supposed to have when no. descending below MDA. You're supposed to see the runway, not yes. the ground, the runway. Correct. You literally just read out my next sentence. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> sure, he knew that contact with the runway would be a little late based on the reports from the last flight, but that doesn't mean you descend in anticipation that you'll see it soon. Nope. That's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. No, it's not. <laughs> He knew that flight 3891 saw the runway at 2.2 nautical miles before the threshold, but flight 3597 was still 3.1 miles to the threshold. And based on simulators done by investigators, runway contact was not possible. He could not see the runway from where he was. He should not have descended. Nope. Beginning and end of story at that point, I mean, just shouldn't have done it. Yep. This steep descent profile can be seen in a picture on our website, which also shows that if he had stuck to MDA, they would have been just fine, just like the two preceding flights, which are also depicted. Oh, yeah, he way low. He's low. And you can see where the two other crosshair flights where they held out at MDA. Yeah. They definitely had to approach a little steeper than normal. I think the report said it was like a six-degree descent rather yes. than the nominal three-degree. And- yeah. To be clear about how the MDA actually works, it's not your decision altitude. No, 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 no. Not, and that's kind of how it was depicted in the Air Disasters episode, which bothered me a little bit. It is not how it was depicted. It's not your decision altitude. It is your minimum descent altitude. It's as low as you can go. Until with, you see the runway. Right. So at that point, you can plateau out and actually along the approach, it gives you a specific point in time to have that decision made. You descend to that point, and you can stay at your minimum descent altitude until the decision point. So you can stay down low for a good while. Mm-hmm. Eventually, you hit your decision point, and you have to go around. And the minimum descent altitude is in place so you don't fly into a mountain? Yes. That's literally the entire point. That was exactly the point. <laughs> the point is for you to stay at that altitude until you see the runway. And, and you then can fly to the you runway. You can fly to the runway. Yes. But I'm not done with the captain yet. Great. This is this guy. This guy. This guy. (laughs) Quote, on the two days preceding the accident, the commander had clearly exceeded the permitted maximum duty times and had slightly undercut the prescribed rest time in the night before the accident. It can thus be assumed that he would tend to be overtired on the day of the accident. The accident happened at the end of the day in which the commander had been awake for 15 hours. Oof. As a result of his freelance activity as an IFR instructor before his scheduled flying duty, at the time of the accident, he had been on duty for more than 13 and a half hours. Yes. He was on duty the day before for over 15 hours. He was on duty this day for over 13 hours, including the time... He was instructing. He was instructing in the morning. Sorry. That all was not part of the quote. Let me continue the quote. Yes. A longer break from work, which might, for example, have allowed recuperation through sleep, was lacking. The bad weather may have further increased the strain throughout the day and led to greater fatigue. Such tiredness adversely affects concentration and decision-making, as well as the ability to analyze complex processes, and the frequency of mistakes increases, end quote. So, knowing he had to be on duty, uh-huh. he was instructing mm-hmm. for duty. Mm-hmm. I got time. He had... 
10 hours, a little over 10 hours of rest time built in. Yeah, but rest, I don't know if we ever talk about this, but rest time happens when the door of the airplane opens. Pretty much. It's considered as soon as you're off duty. That is not sleep time. That's not that. No, that is not the time they are sleeping. I feel like some people don't realize this, though. And I didn't realize this until I saw that the flight attendant TikTok that we watch all the time. She's amazing. She was talking about rest time and she's like, I don't think people realize. I'm like, they don't because I didn't. That it's basically when you step off the airplane, when you're off duty, that's when your rest time starts. Then you have to get to the hotel and then you have to check in and then you have to go to sleep and then you have to wake up and then you have to make sure that you wake up on time and then you got to get ready. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get dressed and get ready and then you got to go to the airport. And it's like all of that is included. So really 10 hours of rest time is pretty much just enough time to sleep eight hours, get from the airport to the hotel and from the hotel to the airport. And spoiler, the operator... And the flight school he was working for did not talk to each other to determine what his duty times were. Yep. Well, and why would they? I mean... Because this is the flight school for the airline. Oh, that's a problem. Now, there are other things to that, and that is legalities when it comes to duty times. And at the time, much like our requirements and such, they were a little bit looser than they are now. Okay, continuing... Investigators then went into a list of mistakes that were recorded on the CVR, including the co-pilot pointing out the overspeeding, as Nick had mentioned, describing a left turn instead of a right turn, and the 120-foot discrepancy from the standard glide path that I mentioned earlier. These are all mistakes that they attributed to fatigue, probably, maybe. And I think it's pretty fair. I mean, this was like the end of their day. This was literally the end of their day. They're just trying to make it to the ground so they can get in the car and go home. But for him, it's like an extra long day. Yes. The problem is, is he made it extra Yeah, long. he did. That was his fault. Yes. And he's had multiple long days. Yep. So the first officer didn't have a very long career prior to this with less than 500 flight hours, but he was described as lively, not aggressive, and seeking harmony. These are characteristics that would need some development so as to not be necessarily submissive in the cockpit, but they aren't of concern at this early point in his career. It just made him more susceptible to not pointing out mistakes to the captain. Quite frankly, he was trying to when he did notice them, though. Yes, but let's talk a little bit more about their interactions. The first officer had actually had the captain as a flight instructor. Oh, God. During his instrument flight training. Oh, no. This does complicate things. Lending to the already teacher-student atmosphere, despite now being in a professional, commercial environment. In fact, for two minutes, the captain lectured the first officer in detail about interpretation of a runway report, further putting him into the role of the student, despite the first officer actually having interpreted the report correctly anyway. So he seemed rather disinterested during the improvised lesson. Investigators then went into a rather lengthy list of reasons that the first officer did not stop the captain from descending below MDA without runway visual contact. I am not reading all of them. I have selected four out of like the eight. So, one, they did not discuss a plan for approach configuration and how they had to deviate from standard operating procedures, what with the weather. So it was hard for the first officer to assess actual events in good time. I guess that makes sense, yeah. Two, quote, the decision to configure the aircraft for landing only after the final approach fix and to constantly change this configuration throughout the final approach made it more difficult for both crew members to monitor the aircraft's glide path and to predict its chronological development, end quote. This led to an increasingly steep glide path. Below the nominal glide path. Yes. Agreed. Okay. Let's just like 
fudge with the flaps every five seconds. I don't know what was actually happening, but that's basically how it was depicted. They kept changing the configuration. Yeah. Three, when the captain called out the altitude at six nautical miles out, where the first officer may have caught the 120-foot deviation, he was instead busy with contacting the Zurich apron control. Four, the calm manner of the captain, quote, very probably created an impression of an experienced superior who is acting prudently and consciously. This may have been one of the main reasons why the co-pilot did not intervene, end quote. Yeah, he thought the captain knew what he was doing. And the captain he was literally his was teacher doing. before. Yeah. Yes. Overall, poor crew resource management across the board. And investigators pointed this out specifically because they had both received CRM training, but only in the last few years. Yes. And it clearly didn't translate well into the cockpit. The airline had crew resource management training, but we'll go into this a little bit more later. Not great crew resource management training. Now for a question that you may have had by now. What about the GPWS? Why didn't it say terrain, terrain, too low? Right. Quote, for about a minute before the go-around was initiated, the aircraft maintained a constant rate of descent of 1,200 feet per minute, just outside the envelopes for excessive sink rate and excessive terrain closure rate. This is why no ground proximity warning system warning was triggered, end quote. It was just outside of the envelope. Yeah. Investigators pointed out that a terrain awareness and warning system, or TAWS, and or enhanced ground proximity warning system, or EGPWS, would have realized that they were approaching the ground too far from the runway, because it takes that into consideration. Yeah. But this aircraft was not equipped with one, because no such system had yet been approved for the Avro 146RJ100. According to JAA requirements, the deadline for retrofitting one was January 1st, 2005. Oh. So like three years away. Yeah. And that's all I got. Okay. Okay. We're going to take a, a short break break, and we'll get back with some of the stuff uh, we always have on the second yes. half of the episode. It is findings and recommendations. <laughs> okay. It is. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes yes, it is. But no, this time it's, it's actually what it is. Break. Break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, we're back. There is an ungodly number of findings and recommendations in this. I knew yeah. you were going to say that. <laughs> So we're not doing all of those. I have definitely picked out some, but definitely not all of them. As a matter of fact, not many of them because there's way too many. Okay. They're, they're verbose. They are. Loquacious. They were. Loquacious. They, Eloquent. They were that way in the history of flight as well, which was unruly with the number of details that were impertinent to the accident. So for findings, for the technical aspects, they found that the ground proximity warning system issued no warning because throughout its flight path, the aircraft was outside the envelopes of Mode 1, excessive descent rate, and Mode 2B, excessive terrain closure rate. So unfortunately, it didn't work in this case. Did not work. They found that the navigation aids on the ground used for the approach were functioning normally. Had nothing to do with the airport's navigation systems. Other than not great. Would have been nice to have an ILS. They found that no minimum safe altitude warning system was present in the approach sector for runway 28 for the airport. Which I was telling Christy earlier because she told me Mm -hmm. about it. And I was like, what's the point 
of doing it on two and not doing it on all. Like, if yes. you're going to do it, just do it to everything. So then you're, as an ATC controller, you it's know. safe. <laughs> yes. I agree. An extra level of safety. Like, I don't understand why why not have that extra, especially on, like we said, on the one that doesn't have the, you know, vertical guidance down to the runway. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just feel like that that's a no-duh moment. Money. Probably money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably money. Whatever. We all know how we feel about that. For the crew, they found that the commander did not pass two conversion courses for the MD-80 aircraft type due to inadequate performance. Yeah, that's bad. They also found that the commander's career shows that he did not always strictly adhere to standard operating procedures, which is also that's a big, really bad. big, big red flag. Yes. When I mean, if you have issues with instrumental flight, okay, but like when you don't follow standard procedures, that's like base safety stuff. Too, yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. Like not great. Yep. They found that on the day before the accident, the commander's flight duty time was 15 hours and 31 minutes. It's an insane amount of time. That's so much time. They go through all the specifics and the rest of these findings, but they also found that on the day before the accident, the co-pilot's flight duty time was 10 hours and 15 minutes, which is also quite a bit. These days, I mean, duty time, it really depends. So the actual time that you spend basically at the airport all the way from the time you arrive to the time you leave at the end of the day can still end up being a lot, but for most pilots, the actual time you spend flying can be no more than eight hours these days, so that's a thing. So how much of that time they actually spent flying, I'm not entirely sure because it doesn't clarify. I'm not sure how much of the time they were actually flying versus how much time they were actually just at an airport on duty doing things. So to summarize the conversation that we most definitely cut out because there was a lot of trying to figure out what was going on. All of the runways at Zurich are now equipped with ILS. Which is a good thing. But they also do still have to have in place VOR approaches in the event that the ILS is unserviceable. Yeah. Yeah. Continuing. For flight progress. They found that in accordance with the operator's procedures, after leaving the initial approach altitude of 4,000 feet, Q&H, the flight crew set the go-around altitude to 6,000 feet on the autopilot's mode control panel. They found that the procedures in the pilot information handbook specify that the crew should configure the aircraft for landing before the final approach fix. Hand in hand with that, they found that the crew configured the aircraft for landing after the final approach fix without having this briefed. So they should have briefed and said, we're going to have everything configured by the final approach fix. Yeah. This would have actually probably drawn their attention more to their instruments planning to reach that final approach fix. But instead, they weren't really paying attention, obviously. Yeah, no kidding. They found that the changes to the ATIS reports referring to the meteorological visibility and the ceiling were not forwarded by the approach air traffic control officer to the flight crew of Crossair Flight 3597. This is not entirely pertinent to the accident, except that it's still important. And the big piece of this that kind of drives me nuts, I didn't mention it, but the ATIS information also changed one more time while they were entering the approach to information November. It's standard for most places around the world, and particularly in the United States, that when an ATIS information changes, as soon as that change is made, whatever frequencies are being used at that airport, the air traffic controller states out loud, ATIS information has changed and now XYZ is current. Right. Whatever it is. So it kind of bothers me because it changed twice on their approach, 
nobody ever told them that it changed twice, so they never got the new ATIS information either time. Yeah. And that's an issue. They found that in the approach control office and in the aerodrome control tower, the workstations were not occupied in accordance with the duty plans, so they were understaffed. Right. For air traffic control. They found that the recordings of the CDR and the radio transcriptions prove that immediately before reaching the minimum descent altitude, the co-pilot was occupied by tasks, which is why he didn't really say anything. Say anything There's about a whole this. host of reasons he didn't say anything. That's just one of them. Yes. He is the pilot monitoring. He has stuff he has to do. Yes, but that is one of them. Yeah. They found that the operator's procedures specified a clear division of tasks between pilot flying and pilot not flying for this flight phase. The flight crew did not comply with these specifications. So this goes with that whole thing. They were trained in CRM, but it really broke down here, and it was found that part of that fell on Crossair not checking this. Yeah. And verifying that they actually understand CRM procedures. I will say that the first officer, it did seem like he understood some facets of CRM, and that there were some facets of CRM in this case that I haven't seen in other flights. Yeah. Where we've talked about CRM not existing. So it was... It was a thing, they understood it, but not well. Or they didn't know how to apply it well. Yes. They also found that the commander deliberately violated the minimum descent altitude for the standard VOR DME approach to 8. They found that the co-pilot made no attempt to prevent the continuation of the flight below the minimum descent altitude. They found that none of the crew members had visual contact with the runway or with the approach lights. Therefore, the conditions for going below the minimum descent altitude and continuing the final approach visually were not that's important. Yeah. They found that about three minutes before the accident, Crossair Flight 3891 landed on runway 28, and the crew reported that they had seen the runway at a distance of 2.2 nautical miles to VORDME KLO. At this point, this aircraft would have been at a distance of about 1,700 meters from runway 28 approach lights. They found that the range of hills with which... The aircraft came into contact was entered in the Swiss AIP. However, this obstacle was missing on the approach chart 13-2 for the Jefferson route manual, which the flight crew were using. So we don't know how this could have changed things, because I don't know per se if they would have been... If they would have been more conscientious about descending below minimum descent altitude, knowing what the topography looks like. Right. I don't know if that would have affected their decision-making... They were both familiar with the area, so they still should have been aware anyways. It does present a problem, though, for, for lack of a better word, visiting flight crews yes. that don't know the area. Yes. It is a pertinent thing to have on the chart, I would say. Yes. So if you look at one of the approach charts, or any of the approach charts, really, for Zurich, it's colored, at least on the version we have, there's an yeah. orange gradient indicating like the darker the color is, the higher the altitude. Yeah. So you can see on your approach what the topography is generally that you're looking at. Yeah. And Jeppesen approach charts still look like that. They found that the flight safety department was not informed in the case of performance problems with flight crew members. So this is a big one because it speaks to there's no communication internally with management or any kind of oversight within the airline. That allows captains like the one on this flight with issues and recurring problems and a bad track record to continue flying because they weren't chit-chatting and saying, hey, this pilot's got issues. Maybe we should either consider retraining or letting him go. Yeah. And they didn't do that. Nobody ever did that. So they just continued putting him on flights. 
bad. It's not great. Nope. This is the last finding I'm going to do. They found that the documents on inspections of Crossair by the competent air transport operations process of the Federal Office of Civil Aviation are not available. This is a bad thing. Because what that means is that basically the, the oversight of the airline itself by the Swiss government was non-existent. Yeah. Or not documented. And that spoke to a bigger problem, which they had a few more findings about, but we're not even going to get into that. So that's all the findings I have for now. So now, as always... The causes. The causes. And it's a chonk. Hmm. The accident is attributable to the fact that on the final approach, in own navigation of the standard BOR DME approach 2-8, the aircraft flew controlled into a wooded range of hills. Controlled flight into terrain. See fit. See fit. Yep. It does say that. Because the flight crew deliberately continued the descent under instrument flight conditions below the minimum altitude for the approach without having the necessary prerequisites. The flight crew initiated the go-around too late. That yep. was blunt. The investigation has determined the following causal factors in relation to the accident. 1. The commander deliberately descended below the minimum descent altitude, or MDA, of the standard VOR DME approach to 8 without having the required visual contact to the approach lights or the runway. Two, the co-pilot made no attempt to prevent the continuation of the flight below the minimum descent altitude. The following factors contributed to the accident. One, in the approach sector of runway 28 at Zurich Airport, there was no system available which triggers an alarm if a minimum safe altitude is violated. Minimum safe altitude warning system, MSAW. Two, over a long period of time, the responsible persons of the airline did not make correct assessments of the commander's flying performance. Where weaknesses were perceptible, they did not take appropriate measures. Three, the commander's ability to concentrate and take appropriate decisions, as well as his ability to analyze complex processes, were adversely affected by fatigue. Four, task sharing between the flight crew during the approach was not appropriate and did not correspond to the required procedures by the airline. Five, the range of hills which the aircraft came into contact with was not marked on the approach chart used by the flight crew. Six, the means of determining the meteorological visibility at the airport was not representative for the approach sector runway 28 because it did not correspond to the actual visibility. And seven, the valid visual minimums at the time of the accident were inappropriate for a decision to use the standard VOR DME approach 28. They shouldn't have been using that approach anyway. No, definitely not. So now for some recommendations. Please. And please say that an MSAW is requested for runway 28. I mean, it's in place now. What with the ILS? So I'm going to go through these, but these recommendations are a little bit long winded. And again, there was a lot of them and I've only picked out some. Supervise. I, I will do my best because it's it's hard when they write the way they do. We recommend that the Federal Office of Civil Aviation should investigate whether criteria can be laid down according to which not only the flying experience of individual crew members is taken into account for the composition of a flight crew. In particular, the extent to which guidelines concerning qualitative criteria can be laid down and inappropriate control procedures drafted for their application should be examined. This should be performed in order to ensure that until the necessary aptitudes are demonstrated, crew members newly assigned to a specific aircraft type or to a specific operation are guided and supported by an experienced crew member. There's two relatively inexperienced people in this airplane. The gist that they're getting at is one of them has a bad track record, but both of them have low hours on this airplane. And these airplanes weren't new in 2001 by any means. So the issue that they had in particular is that... They shouldn't have been paired together. They shouldn't have been paired together. They did okay on previous flights, but the reality is maybe it was just a matter of time. And 
they should have been paired with more experienced flight crews on this, and they probably shouldn't have had the captain being the captain yet on this particular airplane, especially when he wasn't familiar with all of the systems on this newer airplane, newer to him. Moving on. They recommend the Federal Office of Civil Aviation should check the criteria, regulations, and procedures which govern the selection and conversion of pilots of aircraft with piston engines or turboprop propulsion systems to aircraft with jet engines or aircraft with modern equipment. Just having a better hand and oversight by the government in what the airlines are actually doing in Switzerland when it comes to converting pilots up. Yeah. Upgaging them to bigger, newer, more modern airplanes. They recommend that the Federal Office of Civil Aviation should check the performance and knowledge of those crosshair pilots, and if necessary, those of other operators whose career includes peculiarities, gaps, or particular incidents, i.e. retracting the gear on a Saab. Uh, yeah. This check should not be limited to looking through a pilot's dossier, but should include long-term observation and at least random checks on a performance on scheduled flights. Appropriate measures should be taken for pilots with inadequate performance in cooperation with airline management and psychomedical experts. I mean, yes. Yes, all of those things. We've talked a bit about that in even recent episodes. episodes. They recommend that the Federal Office of Civil Aviation should examine measures which ensure that large aircraft without a terrain awareness and warning system are retrofitted with such a system as quickly as possible. Pretty straightforward. Yes. They need to have the enhanced ground proximity warning system. Would be great. Because it's so much better. It is. It literally and, does a lot. And they do these days. BAE 146s or these Avro RJ100s, they're not very common anymore. And even the ones that do that are out there, they've generally been upgraded so that this isn't a problem anymore. Yeah. But newer airplanes, there's just newer airplanes on the market, and they just that's just, just really not a problem. Also, Crosshair went under in 2002, a year after this accident, so not a problem anymore, yeah. really. Didn't they get eaten? Yeah, by Got Swiss. Owned. Them and Swissair kind of merged and became Swiss International which is the current airline in Switzerland. No, really? Yes. So they took all these airplanes and they took all the crews and everything from both airlines, kind of merged and made them into one cohesive unit and made better standards for the pilots of all of them. But also, I mean, they got rid of these airplanes eventually. Swiss flew them actually for a long time. They had them even relatively recently, but... They recommend that the Federal Office of Civil Aviation should arrange for the approach sector of Runway 28 to be equipped with a minimum safe altitude warning system, which provides an automatic visual and acoustic warning of critical altitude violations. The ATC operating regulations must then be complemented by regulations on warning crews in the case of such critical altitude violations. So don't just put the system in place, but have a procedure to make sure when that alarm goes off, what to do next. Yes. They recommend that the Federal Office of Civil Aviation should use its influence to ensure that obstacles below approach paths are entered in broadly distributed publications, such as the Jefferson Route Manual, for example. It should be on the chart. And it is. Now. now. They recommend that the Federal Office of Civil Aviation, together with the operator, Crosshair, which became Swiss, should check how a complete check on total flying duty time and rest time can be guaranteed. Ensure that these times are not excessive. Yeah, well, and make sure that you're giving them enough time to sleep. Although, that wasn't really the case here. It, no. The captain did a boo-boo. That was his fault. Yes. Or rather, the two entities didn't talk to each other. And they should have. That too. And that's an issue. And then, I mean, nowadays, it's just, there's a lot more strict guidelines on how many hours you can fly in a day and how those hours are structured. Right. At least in the United States, there's, the FAA has 
pretty strict guidelines on that. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're not still kind of pushing to the limit of that for crews. I have a fun little story to tell for the post episode about crew times. Okay. Only one more. They recommend that the Federal Office of Civil Aviation should arrange for qualifications and proficiency checks to be administered, at least on a random sample basis, by inspectors or independent experts from the Federal Office, the government in Switzerland. Yeah. Basically, their FAA should be doing oversight of all of these pilots and all these operators. What? Yes. Do their job? Doing random samples and watching to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. What a concept. Shocker. That'd be kind of a fun job, actually. I mean... Oversight. It would keep you busy because you have to make sure that they're following all their own standard operating procedures, that everything... I mean, it's a, it's a, a heck of an audit to have to do. They did it. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, you'd have to travel all over Europe and all over the world to do it. Yes. So that's basically it in a nutshell. There were actions. They had this whole section on actions that they did change, but it was they pretty much lent it all into Swiss is now the airline because at the time that this report actually came out, there were like crosshairs basically gone now and now Swiss is in control and Swiss has changed all of these procedures, changed how they check pilots, changed the requirements. These days, our requirements have changed vastly. Duty time requirements have changed vastly. Equipment and aircraft has changed vastly. The airport now has ILSs and minimum warnings. So that's all not an issue anymore. So that was Crosshair Fight 3979? 3597. 3597. I was close. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. We do have two listener questions. Oh. The first one's from Sublate, our patron. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. They ask, are there any fictional depictions of air disasters that you particularly like or dislike and why? By air disasters? Well. I liked the Tenerife. Yeah, the Tenerife one. One. I think it gives, I mean, it's used over and over and over again all over the internet too, but it gives a pretty good depiction of kind of how devastating, truly devastating. And what what happened, like what it looked like when it happened. Because that one can be pretty confusing. Yeah. I mean, especially listening to it, like us talking about it, Mm -hmm. watching it as a a depiction is like, holy crap. That was definitely a pretty good one. I can't even remember so many of them. I'm trying to think of like the other pretty good ones. I have not seen... The one for U.S. Bangla 201. Oh, yeah. No, we haven't watched that. But I've heard that it doesn't show this blatant sexism. There's some of the stuff that was in that CVR that they wouldn't be able to put on TV. I mean, no, but it's a huge factor. Yeah, agreed. It's not necessarily that it's a wrong depiction. It's just not a full depiction. And the only way you would know that is if you went to the bottom of that report and read the CVR. Yeah. I don't remember which one it was, but there was one where they depicted everything like I felt like the animations were overdone. Like it was depicting it going way faster than it was doing like crazier maneuvers than what was actually happening and things that weren't actually happening to the airplane. But I don't remember which one it was. I remember thinking that at the time. I just can't I can't place which episode it was. Was it FedEx? No. It wasn't that FedEx. was a crazy good depiction, though. Can that we talk was actually, about yeah, that was a good one. Uh, no, I don't remember which one it was. Anyways. On it, how many episodes do we have? Like, go back and listen. I don't know. We talk about ones as like, air disasters got everything wrong. We're like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are not always factual. No. We uh, find errors in pretty much every single one of their episodes. I would like them. I. It's probably out by now. I don't know. I don't keep up with this. I would like them to do 
the Mount Erebus crash because I still don't fully understand what happened. Yeah. That one, I know what happened, but it, it, it's, it's confusing. It's very confusing it. if you don't understand that form of navigation. Yes. Which I don't. And that is fair. That's probably why they hadn't covered it. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's a pain. And it's not an easy thing to understand in a small amount of time, basically. Okay. What, okay. what else we got? Next question. Lieutenant Spock. Okay. What they put their name was. That was Thanks. nice. Back. Um, this is specifically a question about episode 121. If you don't remember, that was Delta... 1141? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... You have an extraordinary podcast here. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well-researched and communicated with skill and humor. As such, I feel obligated to mention to you, you may be experiencing a bit of sampling bias. Notably, episode 121, the Delta 727 crash, mm-hmm. where the flight crew failed to extend flaps to the takeoff position despite the CVR reporting the checklist challenge and incorrect response. Mm-hmm. Correct. I say sampling bias because the hosts attributed the crew's failure to properly execute the pre-flight checklist to conversation on the flight deck, which I don't think is particularly true, and we'll talk about that in a second. I think you may be assuming that because every accident report lists unrelated conversation as a factor, whether it is causal or not, unrelated conversation is horribly dangerous diversion from the task at hand. My question is, is it more appropriate to attribute the crew's CRM failure to a lack of leadership by the captain than the crew's failure to maintain a sterile cockpit during the prolonged ground operations phase? And I think we didn't clear this up well enough, but actually the flight engineer was Tried. was the one who was trying to get them to come back. Yeah. And even the, the captain... We discussed this briefly, but it's not really... I know we didn't do a great job of really clearing this up. Both the captain and the flight engineer were actually trying to kind of stop the conversation between the first officer and this... The flight, the atten- flight attendant. The flight engineer multiple more times. so. More yes, so the flight the engineer captain. kept trying to draw their attention and back to, we've got a job to do. Yeah. I so think it's... here. Here's my... I think the way that we presented it, you would think that, but we presented it as it was presented in the report. You have to remember, we base all of our stuff off of what was in the report. Yes, the captain's leadership. I think it was a conglomeration of things. I don't think it was only sterile cockpit. They do in the episode and in the report, actually, they do directly attribute it to the captain's lack of leadership. A. B, I think it's not so much the content of the non-sterile cockpit or the fact that it was there, I think it was just saying this is how they used their time instead of going through the checklists. Right. Yes. The way that we presented it, looking back on it, the sterile cockpit, the problem with them not using it is they ran out of time to do the checklists. And therefore rushed the checklist and and, didn't actually... And didn't catch the fact that they should have had flaps. They were sitting on the ground taxiing basically parked in their taxi for a long period of time. They had so much potential time. And rather than using that time effectively in a sterile cockpit setting under good leadership, none of that happened. Right. Yes. So yes, you are correct. I think the, I wouldn't even say the captain's lack of leadership, although if you want to put it that way, sure. I think it was just the bad CRM in general of everybody. And really 
first officer was really the first officer, the biggest, the biggest offender. offender of the three of them, right? Yeah. Could it have been that the captain could have spoke up and said, "You need to go"? And I think I said this in the episode. Yes. Yeah. And but he you should need have. to go. Like we're this is we can't do it's this right okay. now. I mean. Any one of them should have. And the captain it. in particular should yes. have. I mean, in a position of leadership. Right. It but. is his cockpit, and he should have said, listen, we have a job to do, and now is not the time to be doing any of this. Yes. Now, like we've said, the thing, the situations have changed, rules have changed. They really can't come into the cockpit once the airplane's moving yeah. and below 10,000 feet. That's just not a thing. So. And we're not saying that they can't have conversations at other parts of flight. That's a different. That's a different situation. It's the the parts of flight that they have to keep sterile cockpit critical critical points of flight. ports of points of flight where they they can't be discussing yeah. unrelated stuff. It's not the entirety of the flight because that's not true. They are legally defined as critical phases of flight, and that's when sterile cockpit applies. This is that, a critical phase of flight. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Thank you for the questions. Yes. Actually, they're they're very valid, and I very much appreciate it. Please, Thank y'all, you. ask questions. Yes. Please. We appreciate it. Also, they also said at the end, again, love the show, keep it up, and, and we will. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think we, we did talk about it in the episode. It just maybe... We talked more about sterile cockpit. I don't know, but in that case. was that was like over a month ago we recorded that. So yeah, it's been a while. All right, thank you so much for listening. If you are not a patron, that's cool, but you should go check out the Patreon. <laughs> Two <laughs> ways you can do that, as I always say, you can do it on the website. We have an info tab. You can also pull us up on Patreon directly. We'll pull right up. You can see all the posts that are included. You just can't listen to any of them <laughs> unless you're a patron. Also, thanks to Ash. They got us like fan art art yeah one of their friends made a made a piece of fan art and it was super cool i'm like that's it we peaked and we'll yeah Yeah. (laughs) we'll post it but it it was super cool anyway i've got a cat in my face so it's probably time to sign off yep we're gonna get pizza and then have our evening oh we're gonna post episode a little bit but yes i'll leave you guys to post episode while i go get the pizza but then we will have our patron zoom call with our flight crew level patrons yep yes just another plug shamelessly yep stay safe stay healthy and we'll catch you all next time keep Keep your speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hard landings podcast and on twitter at hard landings pod subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen if you would like to see photos and sources for this episode please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions this episode was researched and written by nick and christy Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.